Today we're going to turn to the book of Hosea, uh, book of Hosea chapter 7, Hosea chapter 7, and we'll be in verses 4 to 12 today, Hosea 7 and 4 to 12, so turn there with me. And as you get there, uh, you know, road signs are designed to be uniform and readable because that's what you need on the road. As you're uh, going down the interstate, you want to make sure that you can read the sign in enough time to know whether or not that next stop has a Chick-fil-A at it. Right? And you want, you want to be assured of that. You want to know where your turn is. And that is especially so as you're driving 70 miles per hour or maybe 100 miles per hour. No, you shouldn't do the latter. That's bad. That's wrong. It's dangerous. Very dangerous. Um, but right, road signs are meant to be readable, and they're meant to be uniform, so that way you don't have to guess. Well, what does that sign mean? It's supposed to be readable. It's supposed to be uniform. Uh, wherever you go in the United States, you should see those signs. Now, granted, if you go to a place like Puerto Rico, for instance, uh, their road signs tend to be in Spanish. And so you better know at least a little bit of Spanish. But even if you don't, you can generally tell what the sign is telling you to do by the uniformity of it, right? So that's why they're to be uniform and to be readable. Road engineers don't want you to miss the signs. And today, as we come to our text in Hosea 7, we find a people who are missing the signs. They're missing uh, something far more important, though, whether or not Burger King's at the next exit. They're missing the signs from God that God has given them to warn them about what is to come. And if we are not careful, we might miss the signs that God gives unto us. So today I want us to see in our passage that sin blinds us to its realities, leaving us as fools. Sin blinds us to its realities leaving us as fools. So let us see from the scripture this morning out of Hosea chapter 7, verses 4 to 12. And this here is the word of the Lord. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hands with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. And he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. And this is the word of the Lord. To remind ourselves, Hosea has a ministry, a prophetic ministry, a preaching ministry unto the northern kingdom of Israel. And remember that the, the people of Israel who are united under uh, King Saul and King David and King Solomon are united no more. They have split. They have broken apart. And we have the northern tribes and then the one southern tribe of Judah uh, doing its thing. So we have a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And this northern kingdom, immediately upon the installation of the first king of the northern kingdom, goes running off into idolatrous worship. That's the first thing they do. Uh, one of the first acts of Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, was to install false worship, to codify it, to make it law, as it were. 
And so they continued, and they continued in their sinful practices, and the nation began to decline. The more sin, the more society came apart. The more sin, the more God promised to visit upon them the chastisement, the discipline for their sins. And this is the ministry of Hosea. He's to declare the coming judgment and also the future hope of restoration to an obstinate people. Already in this chapter, uh, God has spoken in verse 2 of chapter 7. God says, But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. right? And, And this to say, the people are missing it. They don't consider that God sees their evil. They think they're in a fine situation, but they're not. They're foolish. They're blinded to the reality. They're ignorant of how their own sins are destroying us, destroying them. Uh, Last week, when we finished, we finished with verse 3, and I gave them this indication that that what we come into our passage today, we come into uh, a discussion, an issue with the political and governmental leadership. And we see there in verse 3, I'll read that for us, Hosea 7.3 says, By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. And the understanding is something like this, that that the courtiers, those who are surrounding the king, those who are serving the king, those who are in the governmental offices and the political offices, what they are doing is evil, deception, debauchery, and intrigue. And the king loves it. The king is enjoying it. Uh, Kind of the idea is this. They bring the king's uh, enemies, the heads of the king's enemies on a platter to the king, the king delights in it. It's a depraved king and depraved courtiers. And so we come to this uh, scene today in our passage where we have a political situation that is out of control and really under no one's control because the king's kind of asleep at the wheel himself. Or I should rather say the king's dead at the wheel himself because we come to a tumultuous period in the people and the lives of the people of the northern kingdom where it seems like every other day the king's getting killed and a new king's, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. And so we come to a situation out of control. But we also have this uh, this passage here and we have to come to it with a bit of hermeneutical humility. And what I mean by that is uh, this is a difficult Hebrew text. And we can see that even in the differences of our translations. If we were to compare the way the different translations uh, understand this, we find uh, kind of a diverse use of of translation, a a diverse use of words for different portions of this text. All that to say is it's a difficult text. And not only that, but it's a difficult text because it's metaphorical in nature and we're kind of so far removed from the context of what Hosea is talking about that it's difficult for us to immediately grasp. I'm going to give you the some option today about how we understand this. Uh, so so hopefully we come away with it with an idea, but it may not be necessarily the, the only idea that we can derive from this. So I just want to pr- uh, front that to say that we come to a difficult text, but by God's grace and by the help of His Spirit, we can understand something of this for ourselves today, right? That's, that's our goal. That's our aim. So let's see first the oven's flame, the oven's flame in verses four to seven, the oven's flame. In verse four begins, they are all adulterers. Right? We frame this text in the context of the political and government life, governmental life of the Northern kingdom. Uh, again, seven Chapter 7, verse 3 gives us this idea that the courts of Israel, the court of Israel is one of intrigue. It's one of deception. And it's one of sex, sexual immorality. Uh, We get that right here in this this passage, right? In, In this verse, they are all adulterers. And perhaps this relates to actual adultery. We know that is something that is going on during this time. Uh, it's rampant among the people. Hosea 4.14 Hosea 4.14 tells us, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. 
For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. All right, so there Hosea points out how among the people, right, God's not going to be overly harsh with the women for their sexual immorality because the men are leading them in it. The men are out front of this and doing the very same thing and more. So right, there's, there's physical adultery. But as we see this word adultery, we also know in the context of Hosea that it also relates to spiritual matters. They are spiritual adulterers. They have made a covenant with one God and they worship every other God that under the sun. Right? They worship every other God that they think will please them and give them what they want. And so they're not just committing covenantal marriage, uh, you know, a marital covenant adultery, infidelity. They're, they're committing spiritual covenant infidelity, unfaithfulness. And what we learn here of the political leadership is that they excel in it, right? They are all adulterers. They are all unfaithful. Not one man among them can say that they have kept their way pure and kept the marriage bed undefiled. Further, Hosea says, they're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to serve the fire. And again, this is a strange uh, strange thing for us to, to think about. But this seemingly means something like this, that the passions of the political leaders are so inflamed, are so, uh, are so prevalent, so uh, filled, is that it's like a baker who doesn't need to tend the fire anymore. Right? Remember the context of this day, they don't have ovens, right? They don't have ovens like we have ovens. <laughs> They didn't just go and set the temperature to 350 and boop, leave it, right? No, they have to add, add wood, add coal. They have to manage the temperature. They have to move the logs around to make sure that the, all the logs uh, get consumed and turn to embers. They have to stir the fire, right? If you've ever kept a campfire going, this is what they're doing. But it's in the context of some kind of enclosed oven. So it is, you know, something probably enclosed in brick. But they have to work at it. And yet what, what Hosea says here, the baker doesn't have to work at it. Right? He's like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Which, by the way, it takes about uh, 45 minutes to an hour to prove a loaf of, a loaf of bread. You know, dough. And then you have to prove it for a little bit longer. So think about that. For hours, this baker is doing no work. When it would seem to be that he should have much work to do. So it is with the the people, the political leaders. Even without someone actively pressing the king and his courtiers towards sinful passions, the passions of the political leaders smolder in flame. They desire, they take, they do what, whatever it takes to get what they want. Their passions are unbridled, we might say. Remember the word of James in James 1, 13 through 15. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Does Satan play a role in our temptations? Absolutely. James wouldn't preclude that possibility. But what he points out here in in those verses is that we don't need the devil to stoke the fire of our passions. Sin does that enough within us. 
And these kings and princes and political agents are enticed by their own desires. They don't need anyone to convince them of what they want or how they ought to get it. They take it, they desire and reach out for it. It might be something like, well, it's good to be the king. Or at least, it's good to be friends with the king. That's the mentality here. And and really, as I was studying this passage, one of the things that kept coming up in my mind over and over again is is if you have ever uh, seen on on television or movies, maybe kind of a depiction of the courts of England during different periods of time, it's just this kind of debaucherous, uh, sexually immoral, uh, just uh, just overwrought uh, intrigue in the courts of England. Right there are periods where it's just uh, let's see who can get what, and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. And if it takes blowing up the king, let's blow up the king. You know that kind of mentality, and it, and it really it's this idea of one-upmanship, of betrayal and treachery, sex, wine, and murder. Or perhaps closer to home, it's sometimes it's what we learn is taking place in the halls of our own courts of power. Or it's just corruption and evil and self-serving. And so it was in the land of Israel during the time of Hosea. Verse 5 goes on to say, on the day of our king, and this phrase is probably in reference to something like a coronation festival or maybe it's a birthday feast or or some kind of celebration and so what happens on the day of our king instead of it being celebrations about the glory of God right this is what the people of Israel should be doing they should be celebrating the glory of God they should be worshiping God in in praise and worship for his grace and his mercies they should be thank, thanking God And instead, what's taking place? Instead, we find scenes that the nation and the leaders are in drunken debauchery. Right? The princes became sick with the heat of wine. They're drinking so much, we might say, right? The image sounds like, a lot like, they're drinking so much, someone's got to hold their hair up as they're in the bathroom throwing up. They're blackout drunk. They are out of their mind drunk. The wise man understands Proverbs 20, verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The passions of the people carry them away. They party. They lose all inhibitions. In the king, what does he do in such unwise drinking? Right? He's taking part of it here. Uh, verse 5 tells us he stretched out his hand with mockers or with scoffers or scorners or evildoers. And this probably means something like the king invites to his court reprobates, evil people, uh, people who... We would, uh, right, in better days say, what in the world are you doing? Why would you want that guy to advise you on anything? Should we have any wonder at the wildness of the people of Israel when the king invites evil, debaucherous men to advise him and to lead his government? And why does he invite them? Well, don't forget Hosea 7.3. By their evil, they make the king glad. And the princes, by their treachery. Right? They please the king. They, they say pleasing things. They whisper dark, evil things that tickle the king's ear, not unlike that character worm tongue in the Lord of the Rings. The king and the nation are worse for it. But the king doesn't see that. The king misses the signs. We go on, we see verse 6. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. 
And again, we have this other metaphor. And again, it probably means something like their passions, uh, their desires for sinful things. Uh, and in this case, sinful power. And they approach the king with their heart full of intrigue. Right? They're playing a game of political chess. They're trying to dethrone the king and amass power for themselves, even while trying to uh, assuage the king and say, oh, no, you're doing such a great job. And in the background, they're saying, OK, how can we get rid of this fool? Right. They, they want to amass for themselves more power, like some kind of twisted Tim, the tool man, Taylor. Right? That's all they're concerned about. How can I get more power? And in the night, their anger smolders. All night, their anger smolders. Or the KJV, the King James Version here has that their baker sleeps all night. And if we take the word there for baker, it probably means something like how a baker would start a fire at night, at bedtime, so that by the morning, the oven's heated and the, the fire is just embers that are keeping things warm. Either way, if we take that as anger or as the baker, it, we get this idea that it's something like those who attend the king think nothing of evil. And even when they're on their bed, they're obsessing over their passions. How can I get what I want? And in the morning when they rise, they put their evil plans into motion. Right, they're filled with evil desire, and it will be satisfied as a flame with the things of wood, stubble, and hay. Continuing on, verse 7 says, All of them are hot as an oven. Right, They are filled with the lust for power. And what do you do when you want power and someone else has it? You take it. These evil men take and steal the lives of others so that they may be sated in their quest for power. They devour their kings have fallen. One commentator on this passage says that this is probably not in reference to a single assassination. But here's the reality, right? Here's the perspective here. Since Jeroboam II, there has been only one other king who hasn't been assassinated. Go to 2 Kings 15. Uh, and I'm just going to write this down. I'm not going to read them, but go to 2 Kings 15 and you'll find in verses 10, 14, 25, and 30. So 10, 14, 25, and 30 descriptions about how kings were assassinated. How the throne was taken by men lusting for power. And I would ask of our own day, in our own day, how many are willing to do anything for the power of our country? How many are willing to undermine the very nation which they want to control? How many are willing to change the rule of law to ensure that they and their party are victorious always? And by the way, if you think I'm talking about one particular party or one particular person, you're mistaken. The whole lot of them are this way always seeking to undermine the other, always seeking to make things fair for them, which means that they win, and unfair for the other party, that they means that they never win. And what does God say of the people of Hosea in Hosea's time? And none of them calls upon me. None of the political leaders in Hosea's day actually turned to the Lord. They didn't seek God's blessing. And they didn't see God's way. They undoubtedly used the name of God, but had no real intention of seeking the Lord God. Again, in our day, how common it is to see a politician use the name of God to claim something of Christianity, of following Christ, And yet, if you follow their life, if you follow what they promote, Jesus Christ would have nothing to do with it. They use God's name as a certain magical incantation or maybe as a means of placating a certain demographic. How common it is they claim the blessing and authority of God while denying him 
with their heart, their words, their actions. So too was it in the day of Hosea. And here's the reality Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34 to 35. Matthew 12, 34 to 35. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And here's what we have to reckon with as humanity. We are not good. We are not basically good. Right? If you ask the, the average person on the street in our country today, they would say, oh yeah, everyone's born basically good. And they have bought into a lie. Because that's not the case. Humanity is not a race that sins sometimes. No, we are sinners. Sin is in our makeup. Sin is what we breathe. We are sick with sin. We are filled with unholy and unloving and ungodly passions. And therefore, we should be, uh, there should be no surprise when we see evil brought out of evil treasure. It is out of abundance, the, the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus again says, Matthew, or Mark 7, Mark 7, 21 to 23, Mark 7, 21 to 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the reality among the people of God in Hosea's day. There was none who brought forth good treasure. There is none good, no, not one. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in today. We should not be surprised when we see evil spring forth. We should mourn and weep. We should mourn and weep, but never be surprised when someone goes into a school and kills children. We should mourn and weep, but never be surprised when we see our political leaders serving only their own selfish ends. We should mourn and weep, but never be surprised when we find ourselves committing heinous sin against a holy God. Yet these things should not be. And certainly within the church, these things must not be. And if you are in Christ, you are commanded to live differently. But here's the thing. You're more than just commanded. You're also empowered. You're more than just commanded to live differently. You're also empowered to that end. Hear this, the word of the Lord from Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 10 through 14. Romans 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right, so if Christ is in you, you're empowered to live differently by the Spirit of Christ. You can put to death the deeds of the body. You can live. You can walk in holiness before God. And realize this, you must it's not a question of if, it's a question of how. Right? This is the reality. You must walk in holiness before God. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone. And listen to this, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that word strive there is an imperative. It's a command. God is saying, strive, press forward, 
push on towards peace with everyone and for the holiness that we need to be able to see the Lord. Discipline yourself to that end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the passionate flames of sin may be common in our culture. It was common in the political leadership of Hosea's day. The halls of our courts and capitals may be filled with people seeking power at any price, but it never must be so within the church, never among God's people. It should never be said of us that we do not call upon the Lord. Sin blinds us to its realities. Sin blinds us to the costs of what sin is. Sin deceives us. The passions of our flesh are like an oven's flame, which light blinds us. One man said it this way. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now here's the thing, by the way. The man who said that now knows how true that is. He has stood before the holy judge. After his death, disturbing things came out about his conduct. Conduct that was not in accord with the commands of God. And I trembled to think what that day was like for him. Because even as he said that, he was himself living a lie. He wasn't struggling with sin and trying to put it to death. He was embracing sin and hiding it. How true those words were. And yet I fear he never understood the truth of them in this life. God have mercy on us. And save us from ourselves. The oven's flame burns bright. And let's see next the bird's folly. The bird's folly in verses 8 through 12. Bird's folly. Verse 8 says that Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Again, Ephraim here is just another name for the people of Israel. They were kind of the most prominent tribe of the northern northern tribes, the northern kingdom, and so uh, they stand in part for the whole. And we find here that the nation has mixed itself with the surrounding nations, with the surrounding peoples. And this was not to be the case. Uh, God spoke to them in Deuteronomy 7.6. Deuteronomy 7.6, God says, For you are a people, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out to be, uh, chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? So what does it mean that they were to be a holy people? That means they were to be set apart, distinct. We might use the word peculiar, but instead they made themselves common. They wanted to be like everyone else, and so they were. They mixed with the nations in every sphere of society. Right Regarding religion, they adopted the worship of the false idols. They worshiped the Baals and the Asherah. Regarding the political, they made alliances with the foreign nations. When trouble came, they didn't look to God, they looked to foreign nations. When Assyria was pressing upon them, they would run to Egypt and say, Egypt, let's have an alliance. Let's be buds. And when Egypt turned uh, and was starting to encroach upon them, they ran to Assyria and said, Assyria, let's be buds. I didn't really mean all those mean things I said when I was friends with Egypt. I really like you. And I don't like Egypt. And so they flipped and flopped back and forth, back and forth between alliances. But in political world, they, they made alliances with foreign nations. Regarding the culture, they adopted the habits of the surrounding nations, right? They, they participated in the same things that the four nations participated in. Early on in Hosea, uh, they talked about removing the jewelry, removing the makeup. They probably had adopted the styles and the customs of the surrounding cultures. And certainly that couldn't be separated exactly from uh, worship. And so I, that's what they're doing, right? They're commingling their worship, their culture, their politics, They stopped being peculiar, and they started blending in. And the psalmist himself writes of an earlier time that was still applicable in the day of Hosea in Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verses 34 to 39. 
Psalm 1 is 34 to 39. The psalmist writes, they did not destroy the peoples. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the horror in their deeds. Right. So remember back in the time of Moses, as the uh, nation was going into, pressing into the promised land, as Joshua was leading the people into the promised land, God gave them a mission, and the mission was to destroy all the peoples from the promised land. Why do that? That's, that's unfair. That's unkind. They were sinful. They were an affront to a holy God. And God was using the means of the people of Israel to bring his chastisement and discipline on an unholy people. But they didn't obey God. They half obeyed God. They let some of the peoples uh, remain. They got tired of fighting and said, ah, let's just Let's just leave them. They're on that side of the hill. We're on this side of the hill. It's not that big of a deal. Well, it was a big deal because they had failed to be obedient to the Lord. And accordingly, uh, they began to do the same things that they did. They adopted their practices. They mixed with the nations. And that's very vivid language there that the psalmist used. They sacrificed their sons and daughters. And this isn't like a metaphorical thing. Right? It says there that they literally spilt the blood of their children in worship of demons. These, the people that God had rescued, are worshiping demons. It's abhorrent. They played the whore. They were adulterers. The people didn't trust in the Lord God, and instead they hoped that their mixing with the nations would provide them what they wanted. And here's the reality. It didn't. It couldn't. And God continues and says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. Picture here is something like an unflipped pancake. You keep the heat on it long enough, guess what? One side's going to be scorched, burned, and the other side's going to be kind of doughy, at least gross looking, right? What do you do with an unflipped pancake? You put it in the trash. Because it's not good. You don't want to eat that. That's, That's gross. That's disgusting. In any case, we have something unfit for eat here. Whatever we take of this, we have something that is good for nothing. And this was the religion of the people of Israel. Good for nothing. They tried placating God. They tried placating God while they were pleasing their demons. And they accomplished nothing. They gained nothing. They mixed with the nations, but all that gained for them was burnt pancakes. Verse 9 continues. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Foreign nations are devouring the people of Israel. And the idea here really is that their wealth and goods are being carried off by other nations. Um, some of it looked like this. When they want to go make an alliance with Assyria or an alliance with Egypt or whatever, what would they bring? Tribute, wealth, goods. Say, hey, if you make an alliance with us, we'll give you some goods. We'll give you some money. We'll give you some gold. And little by little, The national wealth is depleted. Little by little, these things don't satisfy. Little by little, Assyria starts encroaching upon their territory. Their strength is devoured. And the the terrifying thing, the the sad thing, right? The, The sorrowful thing here. And he knows it not. They don't even recognize what they're doing and what is happening to them. And again, something of our contemporary time bears in this. How much of our strength is being carried off? How much of effort, how much effort is being spent by politicians and cultural elites trying to convince us that everything is fine? How much of time is spent, rhetoric spoken by politicians 
by television and movie, right, actors, actresses, all, all the rest, that try and convince us, no, we're really all good. Things are going great. Things are as it should be. We're doing well. We are still great. Even despite what the evidence points to. The metaphor continues and he says, gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. Um, Scholars suggest, commentators suggest that this is probably not gray hairs on the head. So it's not just that they don't recognize that they have gray hairs on their head. It's probably something like mold, right? The gray hairs of mold. Uh, And I just ask you this, have you ever gone to uh, take a bite or taken a bit a, a bite out of a sandwich and then you realize that the bread that you're eating is moldy or have you ever uh, gone through eight, eaten a whole sandwich and then someone else goes right after you and gets out bread and says oh this bread is bad and moldy and you've eaten the whole sandwich All right it turned your stomach you think to yourself that's it this is it i'm i'm dead this is the big one Come to see you, Elizabeth. Uh, you know, it's this picture that the people of Israel are eating moldy bread and they don't even know it. They're blind to it. They're blinded to the reality of what their worship, their religion, their politics, their culture, their culture, their nation, where it's headed, what it's leading them to. Sin had so blinded these that they acted as fools. They do not know the Lord. Hosea 4.1, Hosea has already spoken. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They do not know the Lord, and they don't know that their own destruction, the deadliness of their own sins, has already descended upon them. The pride of Israel, verse 10 tells us, the pride of Israel testifies to his face or testifies in his presence. There are so many signs of trouble. There are so many pressing points. Things are descending upon them. Here's here's at least one thing that should have been a signpost for them. Hosea has been preaching to them. Hosea has been preaching God's word to them. Even if none of the other priests in the northern kingdom were faithful, there was a faithful man preaching the word of God, and they miss it. The destruction has begun. The devastation clear. The drought's common. The famine's full. And yet, and yet, verse 10, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. They're eating moldy bread and never stop to say, God, help us. God, what do we need to do? God, have mercy upon us. Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 9, 13. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire the Lord of hosts. They never looked back to God. They never sought God's help. Sin, that is their own sin, had so blinded them to the truth that they did not even take into consideration their God. They are determined to destroy themselves. They are dying and refuse to go to the Lord of life. And here's the reality. This is a pattern that we see play out throughout history, throughout our own day, and in the coming days. The book of Revelation tells us that it will be much the same at the end of the ages. Revelation 9, 20 to 21. Revelation 9, 20 to 21. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. 
there's coming a day when God is going to rain judgment down upon this earth. His wrath will be pressed out to the full and people will be so blinded by their own sin, so deceived by Satan that they will not turn back from it. They'll say, well, I just have to be more earnest in my worship of this demon. I have to be more earnest in my worship of this false god. Now, do they know they're worshiping demons? Uh, some of them in our culture, I think, would would do. I think they would do. But for the great majority, they think they're just being honest. right? They're, they're just genuinely trying to seek after a god. Little do they know they seek after things which cannot see or hear or walk. They don't turn back to God. They miss the signs. And friend, God is calling you to repent. He's calling you to give up your sins and to turn to him. And when you suffer, when destruction and devastation fall on you, will you look to God? Will you cease from your sin and seek to serve the Lord? Understand that judgment is coming. God will righteously judge the earth. God's wrath will be poured out on this place and upon all who fail to look to him. And friend, that is you. If you don't trust in Christ, you may enjoy your sin now. You may think that it gives you what you need, but sin is blinding you. Pray to God that you would be able to see. Pray to him, asking him for grace and mercy. Seek his favor. He will open his eyes. Uh, He will open your eyes. He will heal you and give you rest. Don't be like the people of Israel. Don't suffer the judgment of of their sins like they did. Don't suffer that way. You don't have to. Don't be like a daft bird. Because that's what they are. Verse 11 continues and says, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. And the idea here is God's calling Israel like a homing pigeon that can't find its home. Right? How ridiculous is that? Homing pigeons are trained to seek their home. They know where it is. It's not a homing pigeon if it can't home. Right? It's silly. It's without sense. And it says here, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. This is what Israel is doing, right? Rather than going home, rather than going to the Lord, rather than seeking him, here they are flitting to Egypt. Here they are flying to Assyria. But no national allegiance can help them. None can save them. Because their issue is not that they are in a weak global position. Their issue is that they don't seek the Lord. They seek for man what only God can give. And I would pause here and ask you, brothers and sisters, where do you go when trouble comes upon you? When you are faced with a difficult situation, what is your first reaction? Because it's too often the case that when trouble arises, the first thing we do is call upon the powers of our own ability or the uh, other people. Right? We don't seek the Lord. We don't go to God and ask for his help or provision or wisdom. We don't seek to understand if the position that we're in, if we're suffering, for instance, if we're going through a trial and we are in a, in a bad situation, a dark circumstance, if we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't stop and say, okay, why am I here? Is it because I have unrepented sin in my life and God is using this as a discipline and a chastisement to get my attention? Or is he just trying to grow me in trust of him? If we flit about to the things of this world to save and satisfy us, of this we can be certain. We're a senseless bird. We're a silly dove flying in circles thinking we're flying around the world. And in all this, I'm not saying that when we come into difficult situations, we don't have something to do. Not saying that when we get a troubling medical diagnosis that we just go and pray and never take our medicine. I'm not saying that. God uses means. But if our first and foremost answer to life's problem is man's answers, we are foolish. Consider what James says again in James 1, 2 to 5. James 1, 2 to 5. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Why does James tell us to ask God for wisdom? Because if we ever hope to have joy when we meet the various trials of life, it will only be because we have God's wisdom. Verse 12 continues in Hosea. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of heaven. God is going to set a snare for these silly doves. These senseless birds. He casts his net. He brings them down. And he will chastise them. And this last part here, um, where it says in the ESV, I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Probably something like what God has proclaimed to the people, he will carry out in full. The people of Israel could not claim, could not claim ignorance by virtue of silence on the part of God. Did God tell them what he would do to them if he if they failed to keep his commands? Yes. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have the writings, the scriptures, and they may not know them, but that's not because they couldn't be known. That's on them, right? They can't claim ignorance because they should have been fully cognizant, fully aware, fully knowledgeable about what God had said. And note here that it was not just that they had the word of God in written form, they also had it spoken form. Again, remember, Hosea is preaching to them. He's speaking the words of God to them. They had every ability at their disposal to know who the Lord was, what the Lord required, and what the Lord was doing. But they were blinded by their sin, and so fools. And I wonder for your own sake where you stand in relation to God and to your sin. And have you been so blinded by your sin that all that I have said today you've only considered I wonder how this applies to someone else. Have what you've done in taking in what I've been saying has been to only apply it to someone else's account? Have you thought that all this perhaps is just somewhat weird metaphors by some old prophet that's kind of irrelevant for today? Consider this. God's word is living and active. God speaks through his word today. These matters which Hosea called out are not irrelevant for us today. And beloved, who do you turn to when trouble comes? Who do you look to save you? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Right. But is that the reality of your life? Right. We may know the, the answer in word, but it may not make any difference in our life. How quick we are to turn to others, right? We may call up dad. We might turn to mom. Perhaps our first thing to do is to go to the doctor, find out what's wrong, get some medicine to correct it. Maybe we look to politicians and others to uh, fix the ills that plague us in our nation. Maybe we say it's the next president. He's going to be the man to set this country back right on track and everything will be great again. Even within the church, I think we are quicker to call a plumber when we have a plumbing issue than we are to go to God in prayer. And again, God uses means to help us. He has given man wisdom, and he has given man the the knowledge of medicine to be able to develop treatments for us. I'm not saying don't stop taking your treatments. I'm not saying that. There are some Christian cults denominations that would say that i'm not saying that god has given us these things for our good but if that's the only thing we turn to we're fools we really are fools right god uses electricians to fix electrical problems i'm not saying that but if we never consider god in all these things we're fools when we face trials do we look to god Do we call out to Christ? Do we walk in the spirit or by the flesh? And brothers and sisters in Christ, repent of such worldliness. If this is you, 
Repent. Here's the thing. You know, you know, if you are in Christ, you know, what do you do when you sin? You repent of it. You turn from it. You go to God. You remember afresh Christ's sacrifice. He bought you out of sin. He redeemed you from sin that you may no longer walk in it, no longer live in it. Think on these things. And even as we talk about as a church, as a church body, we have to be so mindful of these things. I've been in uh, churches before where the first thing that happens when we have a problem is let's get together, let's discuss it, let's come up with a solution, and let's implement it. And you know what? It was never in any of that discussion. God. Prayer. Here we are saying that we're the people of God, but we never even talk to God about the issue. Do we value the kind of leaders that God wants? Right? Even let's start there. Do we value the kind of leaders that God wants? Right? We've been studying in Titus. What does God want of his leaders, of his overseers? Or do we want leaders like the world around us? Do we want the kind of scheming intrigue that typified the land of Israel and I think very much our own political landscape today? And again, friend, understand this. The signs are there. God will bring judgment on all sin, on all sinners. And that's you unless you repent, unless you turn from your sin and unto Christ Jesus. Christ came and he lived a holy and perfect life that you should have but never can. He suffered the wrath of God for sin, not his own. He died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, defeating death and sin. And he lives now, and all who trust in him will live. His death has paid the penalty of sin so that his people might be free forever. But that is not freedom to fall back into slavery to sin. That is not freedom that we might walk around in the blindness of sin as silly, senseless senseless doves. But freedom to walk in holiness. Freedom to obey God in all things. Freedom from the penalty of sin forevermore. So call out to God this day to reveal to you the truth of your sin. Ask Him for the forgiveness of your sin. Plead that He would change your heart. God is able. God is more gracious than we know. He is love. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, Father, we shudder to think that we might find ourselves in quite the same or similar situation as as Hosea was in his day. And Father, we may shudder all the more to think that it's not just those out there that are taking part in this godless, senseless sinfulness, but that that may be us ourselves. Oh, Father, help us to see. Father, help us to see and to understand. Lord God, please have mercy upon us and show us the truth of our sin. Show us the truth of you, who you are. Father God, give us a vision of your holiness that we would quickly fly to you in repentance. That we would not turn from you in fear, but turn to you in all humility, seeking your forgiveness. And God, we thank you that you do not call us to to offer the sacrifice of blood of our sons and daughters. That you do not call us to cut ourselves and bleed before you, to placate you. But you have given the sacrifice of your only begotten Son, our propitiation, He who bore our wrath, the wrath we deserved from you. Oh, Father God, open our eyes, remove the scales, Help us to see these things, to know them to be true, and Lord, to repent and turn to you. Oh God, we pray for mercy and grace. Oh Father, we pray for your spirit to be upon us, 
to see and to understand these things, to regenerate and renew us. God, we pray this for those who do not know you. Lord, would you have mercy upon them? Father, we see the signs of judgment around us. We read of them in your word. And oh God, help us to be bold, to warn, to call, to speak that message of reconciliation which you have given unto us in Christ. O Father, be praised in us, we pray. Be pleased in us. Be glorified in us. That we would exalt Christ. That we would walk in the Spirit. For our good. And for your glory, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.